The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. We're in the middle of a series called Unfinished because the business of the church is still unfinished. This morning we're looking at life in the early church, beginning in Acts 4:32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, and with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. He owned a tract of land. He sold it. He brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Father, as we honor these men and women who have uh, served our nation, we honor our Savior who gave his life for us and gives us freedom. Not just uh, freedom nationally, but freedom eternally. And we're grateful for that. So, Father, as we look at the word now, as we... As we uh, look at it, I pray that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers in Christ's name. Amen. Ever have the experience, everything is going great, and then all of a sudden trouble starts? I mean, everything's gone well, and then out of the blue, trouble starts. We've all had that experience in some time in life over something. Maybe you're playing with your kids or with your grandkids, and uh, you're just harshing around, playing around. You're play wrestling, and, and then all of a sudden things get out of hand. Trouble starts, and before you know it, they're wrestling for real. Can you experience that? I mean, we've all done that, and, and trouble starts. Or maybe you're playing golf, you're carving some shots, and you're driving like Bubba Watson, and, and then your putting has gone great, and then trouble starts. Or uh, maybe your team starts strong, gets ahead, and loses a game at the end. Trouble starts at that point in time. Or maybe you're home with your bride having a great day. She asks you a question. You answer. Trouble starts. <laughs> One guy writes, my wife sat down on the couch next to me as I was flipping through the channel. She asked, what's on TV? I said, dust. And trouble started. Newlywed couple, he was smelling luscious odors coming downstairs from his wife's cooking, so he went down. It's their first week of marriage. She's making a first attempt at homemade cinnamon rolls. After several minutes of munching on one roll without saying anything, the wife finally asked, carefully wording her question, if I bake these commercially, how much do you think I could get for one of them? Without looking up, he said, about 10 years. And then trouble started. Amazing things were happening in the early church. They were exploding. Over 5,000 people had become followers of Christ. They were giving to one another generously. Peter and John had stood before the authorities, standing before the authorities. They said, you can tell us not to preach, but we are going to follow Christ. And after that, trouble started. Satan Satan desired to seed seeds of disharmony and of dissension and of disunity and division within the early church. Trouble started. Everything's gone well. Everything's gone great. But then Satan comes along and trouble starts. That's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 are about. Things are gone well, but trouble starts. So we start in the early church, things are good. 
I mean, the saints are sharing everything they have. First of all, they are sharing unity. Secondly, they're sharing physical resources. Thirdly, they're sharing the message of the resurrection. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, to the end of that chapter, talks about the sharing of these things. First of all, they shared unity. Gary, where do you get that? The first part of verse 32, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That is, they were united in what they were doing, united in what they were thinking. This is an early theme in the book of Acts. In fact, earlier we saw in chapter 2, verse 46, it said, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Everybody was happy. They're having potlucks every day. Everybody's joined together. They're worshiping together. The church is growing. Everything is hunky-dory. Everybody is happy. They're getting along wonderfully well. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, after Peter and John were released from an overnight in jail, stood up to the authorities. It said, when they heard this, they raised their voices together. The word together is in one accord. They were united in prayer to God. The church has flourished and the church is doing well. God is being honored. God's being lifted up. People become Christ followers and amazing things are happening. They're selling their goods to supply for the needs of others and everything is going well in the early church. So they shared unity. They shared great unity. I would say one of the hallmarks of the three plus decades we've been here at TBC is we have benefited by God's grace not having a major schism or a major division in over three decades. That's a miracle. We say to God be the glory, great things he's done. Not that we haven't had issues, not that we haven't had problems along the way. You put a bunch of sinners together, you're going to have issues. That's the the way it is. We're part of the same family. Every family has issues. But by God's grace, in over 30 years, not a major schism, not a major division. I think that's because we do have loving leadership. We place people over causes, and we always deal with conflict whenever we are aware of it. And by the way, I think that's one of the most important things we can do. I learned as a young man the conflict I avoided, but now I recognize one of the best things to do when conflict arises, deal with it. Because if you don't deal with conflict, you always assume the worst. You always assume the worst. And so if you deal with conflict in a godly way, as godly men, godly women should, then we will. So here's my deal with you and your deal with me. You have an issue with me, come to me. I have an issue with you, I'm going to go to you. You have an issue with somebody in leadership, you go to them or with the elders or deacons or staff. And we will deal with that in a godly way as mature men and women who honor God, who love God, who honor Christ should. That's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we put on the bond of perfect peace and unity that's found in in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. The tragedy is that doesn't happen in a lot of churches. I'm following the uh, just a sad story in Seattle, Washington. Many of you guys are familiar with Mars Hill Church and Mark Driscoll. How many of you are keeping up with that right now? Just a tragedy. Church of uh, nine campuses, 14,000 people in August. Now it's a church of less than 6,000 people in just a few months. It's just tragedy. Mark is out of the ministry, or not pastoring that church anymore. <clears throat> it's not because of immorality, but he's not pastoring that church anymore because of his style of leadership, and the whole thing has gone south. Satan wins again. And so you see disunity, disharmony, dissension within the church. Within the church. So conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. I'm convinced whenever brothers and sisters fight that Satan hands out the ammunition, and he could care less who wins. And so if you have conflict with somebody in the body of Christ, conflict with somebody in leadership, the word of God tells us, put down your sacrifice. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, go and be reconciled, then return to worship. Then on a personal level, 
on a personal level. Most people would rather avoid rather than deal with conflict. How many of you fit in that category? I'd rather avoid than deal with conflict, okay. I mean, that's the way most people are wired. I'd rather deal with it and be done with it and move on. <clears throat> One lady writes in Discipleship Journal, said, the other day I was standing in line in Walmart checkout line, my cell phone rang. I frantically searched through my purse, which feels as huge as a duffel bag when the phone goes off. The name on the caller ID when I finally found my cell phone made my heart pound. It was that of a disgruntled relative who made no secret of her ill feelings towards me. Just seeing her name sent me into an emotional tailspin. I knew from experience I was about to endure an onslaught of finger-pointing, false accusations, and negative assumptions. So I did what any rational person with a master's degree in counseling would do. I let the call go to voicemail. (laughs) Can you relate to that? I I, I mean, rather than deal with it, I'd rather go that way. So here's the deal. We, we, when we're in conflict with someone else, we need to make sure that we deal with it appropriately. That's why the church here enjoyed the unity they did. So, got your pens ready? You're in conflict with anybody? Write their name down. Now, if it's your roommate and she's sitting next to you, don't do it. That's my advice to you students <laughs> over here. Okay? I, I, I mean, who are you in conflict with? Who, who, who are you in dissension with? Let me phrase this question a different way. When your name pops up on somebody's cell phone, do they look at it and say, oh, not her again, not him again, and they let it go to voicemail? Does that fit you? Last Sunday night we had uh, prayer time at TBC, and so a bunch of us gathered in the outback, and we prayed. And one of the things we prayed for were for you, for the families of our body right now in the t- with the upcoming holiday season because upcoming holiday season it's my favorite time of the year it's great joy for me but for a lot of people i realize it's a time of great stress and a time of great family struggle and so we prayed for you last weekend so with that in mind let me ask you this question another way are you in conflict with someone within your family or are they with you and how are you going to handle the holiday season my prayer is that you would pursue biblical reconciliation before god the way it should happen so so that you can be in harmony before that time comes. Well, the church is experiencing great unity. God is blessing them. They're growing. The other thing they did was share physical resources. That's what this whole section's about. When anybody had a need, what happened? Look at verse 34. Anybody was needy, people would sell land, they would sell houses, they would bring the proceeds from the sale, give it to the apostles, and the apostles would distribute to those that were needy. And so you find an amazing thing happening here. Whenever there was a need that was known, that need was met. When we taught through Acts chapter 2, and I was the one doing that a few weeks ago, uh, not one of the other guys on the team up here, but as I was preaching through that, I asked the question, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this a prescription that we're supposed to follow, that is all of us are supposed to sell our land, sell our houses, and, and live on other people, or is this descriptive of what was happening at that time in a unique setting? And we decided it was descriptive, descriptive of what was taking place. If you remember, many people had come to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. The church was born, and we said it's a description of what was happening there because later on, these people would go back to their own homes, go back to their own lands. They would not worship every day like they were doing in Jerusalem, but they would worship on the first day of the week. And so it was a description of what was happening. 
And the reason they were needy, by the way, is because some were poor, some were persecuted, but because of Pentecost, some were homeless. They, they, were, they were there as aliens living in, living in Jerusalem, and they were going to go back home eventually. And so they, there was need for them to have food. They couldn't get temporary jobs, etc. So the, the church supplied for one another. It was a time of great unity and a time of great provision through the generosity of the saints. It's a perfect time for me to pause and say thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your generosity to the cause of Christ and the working of this body. It, it always amazes me. TBC has a budget of about $4 million through those little boxes in the hallway or through the mail come in about $4 million a year. Isn't that amazing? To God be the glory. And we're getting ready to build a building. We have half in hand right now without any type of building campaign. To God be the glory. We have 30 missionaries on 19 different, in 19 different countries. We give 20% of our general fund budget right off the top to missions. That, that will come close by the time we do designated things like sending kids to camp and sending pastors to conferences. Almost a million dollars will go to missions this year. To God be the glory. Thank you for your generosity. Not many pastors, I think, have the opportunity to stand before their body and do that. But God supplies for our needs over and over and over again. Stephen Chung stood up here with Julia. They're moving to New York City. In fact, be here next week. I encourage you to come. It's Stephen's last Sunday to preach. And uh, we want to encourage him and lift him up. And uh, by God's grace, all of their needs are met. Amazing. We had our, our, our uh, great niece Kristen up here. We told you we wanted to get rid of her. We want to send her to the Philippines as a missionary. And uh, by God's grace, 90% of her needs have already been met. Thank you for your generosity. Over and over, God has displayed through your generosity. So, two questions. Question number one, personally, are you generous? Are you generous? Are you? If we brought your checkbook up here, would you be embarrassed if we looked at it? Are you generous before God? How can you not be generous before God who's given you so much? There are all kinds of ways to be generous. Give to these missionaries that are headed out. We've got more getting ready to go, and we're going to launch those this next year. You can be generous in your neighborhood. I, I told you in the home we came from, we kept a, a, a refrigerator in our garage stacked with drinks so that any kid in our neighborhood knew if our garage door is up, they could walk into our garage, open the refrigerator, and get a drink without even asking. So, Gary, why do you do that? Because one day those kids will grow up, they know that's a generous neighbor, and one day they may need to talk to that generous neighbor about something, and hopefully this generous neighbor will point them to Jesus. You can be generous in a lot of ways. Very generous. See, a lot of people aren't. Very generous. That's question number one. Question number two, when you see a need, how do you respond to that need? If you're like I am, you're bombarded every single day with needs. Either through mail, email, uh, people who, I, I mean, it, it's everywhere. It's before us. And I can't tell you where to give, but I can tell you that if you're not giving to meet a need somewhere, that's not right. The scriptures say in James chapter 2, in the section that says faith without works is dead, it says suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Or are you meeting the needs of anybody? You just live in a world of taking care of yourself. In 1 John chapter 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? If you see a need and never respond to needs, is the love of God really in you? You've got to ask yourself that question. If I am never generous towards somebody else, do I really love God? Because if you love God, you will love other people.
When you see a need, you'll respond to that need. Doesn't mean you'll meet every need, but you'll meet some needs. Some of you don't have money to give, but you've got, you can work for somebody, care for somebody else. We've got a group of go-to guys. Roy, raise your hand over here. You want to, you want to minister? These guys go out, and when our widows have need or single moms have need, they'll go and fix things in their house and do other things. Roy will be right here. You're a dude that can do some stuff or a gal who can do some stuff. We need you. They'll come and do that. Every week, me, emails go out of people with needs in our body. We have a benevolence fund. We stock that benevolence fund every year. We supply for people in our body who can't pay bills, et cetera, can't pay utility bills specifically uh, or rent, and we help them uh, one time or multiple times if need be. They shared physical resources as well. Why did they do that? I mean, why do you do that? They did it because the most important verse is 33. I mean, why would you give of your stuff to somebody else? Why? Why would you stick a check in the box? Why would you go meet somebody's need? Why would you care for somebody else? Why would you get up and spend time in the Word? Why would you show up at church on a Sunday when you could be even brunch on a Sunday or sleeping in? Why don't you do those things? It's because of the resurrection. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they shared abundant, or abundant grace was shared among them. It's because of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Resurrection changes everything. The reason you're here is because of the resurrection. If Christ is not resurrected, we wouldn't be here. I would never be in the state of Texas. I'd still be in Louisiana shucking oysters or something. I don't know. But, I, I mean, I would not be here. You would not be here. We would not know one another. But because of the resurrection, life is different. You're changed. I'm changed. I, you order your life differently. You order your time differently. You order your stuff differently. Everything is different because of the resurrection. I wouldn't know my wife wasn't for the resurrection. I started walking with Christ, knew I needed to date godly women. And so Bev was one of those godly women. I would have never known her if it wasn't for the resurrection. My kids wouldn't be here because I wouldn't know her. My grandkids wouldn't be here because I would not have known her. Everything's different because of the resurrection. And so the thing that empowered them was the resurrection of Jesus. You can't get past the resurrection. The resurrection means everything to us, means everything to them. It's the reason why we are here. And then Luke does something he does often in the book, in Luke and the, and the book of Acts. He introduces a character, and then later on he's going to develop that character. He has him walk on the stage, and then later on he develops who this character is. So walking on the stage is a guy named Joseph. So Joseph walks on the stage, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth. Now let's pick that apart. Joseph is a very common name at that time. He's, he's a Levite. Levite was what? What was he? What's a Levite? Not a trick question. A priest. Were priests supposed to own land? No, they weren't. But by the time of Jesus, some priest owned land. So Joseph either owned land personally, maybe his wife owned land, or he was Cyprian, which means he was from the island of Cyprus. So maybe his family had land back there. He sold some land, brought to the apostles, gave it to them. So Barnabas is mentioned. His name, his name is Joseph, and his nickname is Barnabas. Talk about that in a second for two reasons. One is to be introduced as a main character in Acts. He's going to come across a little later in one of the missionary journeys with Paul. And secondly, he's used as a positive example in the early church. We're going to look at that in a second. We'll focus on for one second. So this guy named Joseph, they called him what? Barnabas, which translated means son of encouragement. 
See, the apostles got together one day and they said, you know, we've got a bunch of Josephs hanging around here, so we've got so many Josephs, we need to give a couple of these guys nicknames. And so Joseph from uh, the Levite from Cyprus comes on. They're having this little conference. The disciples said, what are we going to call him? I love to give guys nicknames. Anybody hangs out with me, you know, I love to give guys nicknames. So uh, they do that and they do it back to me. But uh, they said, what are we going to name this guy? So they started looking at his life, and somebody says, I've got it. Let's call him Barnabas. Who? Sounds like a farmyard something, a Barnabas. We'll call him Barnabas. You know why? He's a son of encouragement. Whenever I see Joseph, the Levite from Cyprius, he's encouraging somebody, so his nickname will be son of encouragement. So I'm in my office this week, and my thoughts went like this. It's not wise sometimes to share everything you're thinking with people, but I'm going to do that. My thoughts go this way. So Gary, if your closest friends got together to give you a nickname, what would it be? What would it be? If your closest friends got together... Gave you a nickname. Not what would you want it to be, but realistically, what would it be? Here comes John, son of thunder. Always angry, always mad, always causing problems wherever he goes. Here comes Sally, the daughter of gossip. How's that for a nickname? Sally, daughter of gossip. One lady said, I don't repeat gossip, so listen carefully the first time. (laughs) Here comes uh, James, the son of dumbness. Where do you get that, Gary? James and Sarah have been married five years. They had two kids. They decided to take a second honeymoon. They left the kids with grandparents. They went down to the beach. They were getting dressed, putting their swimsuits on to head down to the beach. She was leaning over, putting her sandals on. He went by, pinched her on the side where she had a little roll after five years of marriage and two kids. He looked at her and winked and said, we better watch how much we eat on this trip. James, the son of dumbness. I bet that was a great second honeymoon, wasn't it? You go sleep in your own room right now. Then there's uh, Susie, the daughter of bitterness, and I get that from a Craigslist ad. Listed by Susie, for sale, wedding dress, size 8, worn once, by mistake. Wow. What's your nickname? If your friends got together and said, let's give him a nickname, what's it going to be, really? Based on your character and the characteristics of your life, what's it going to be? His name in college, what did the guys name me? Fat boy is what they call me. I'd bench press them right out of here right now if I can get a hold of those suckers. 
But, but I mean, I mean, here's the example of Barnabas. Well, he's not only an example, but he, he is a contrast to what happens in chapter 5. Look at what happens in chapter 5. A certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And they kept back some of the proceeds, for, some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, what happened is he had a piece of land. He sold a piece of land. He had pledged to give it all, but he didn't give it all. He lied about it. Look, look, how do I know that? Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? So here's Satan coming to sow seeds of discord, disunity, uh, dissension within the early church. That everything is good, now trouble's coming. And so he says, why have you allowed Satan to do this? Do you lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it was unsold, did it remain your own? Yes, it did. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Yes, it was. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Why have you done this? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. By the way, one of the things that I did is I circled the word Holy Spirit in verse 3, circled the word God in verse 4, drew a line between it. Here's a little lesson in pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. We worship a triune God. Here Peter calls the Holy Spirit, equivalates him to God. No, doesn't see him separate, doesn't see him less than. He calls him God in verse 3, and, and for, or and calls him Holy Spirit in verse 3, calls him God in verse 4. And so he says, Ananias, here's the problem. You pledged an amount from the land that you sold. You brought a lesser amount. You lied. Why would he do that? Maybe to flatter it. We get flattered from the apostles. recognized in the church for approval from everybody. We don't know why. It doesn't tell us his motive. But whatever it was, it, it was wrong. And so what happens to him? Look at verse 5. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. He died right there. He, he made a pledge. Didn't give what he pledged. He lied to God. He died. One of the reasons we don't take pledges at Temple Bible Church during building is because we don't want that to happen to you. (laughs) No pledges. No pledges. You give as God wants you to give. So what happens? Well, young men, they they arose. They covered him up. And uh, verse 6, they carried him out and they buried him. Three hours elapsed. Verse 7, and uh, his wife came in. She didn't know that her husband had died. She comes in not aware of what had just happened. They went out and buried the guy because he had lied to God. They wanted that unholiness out of their presence as quickly as they could, so they bury him. It's quite unusual for that to happen. And so Peter looked at Sapphira and said, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? You are testing God. You're standing before God, lying to him and testing him. Why do you do that? Why? Remember when Jesus was tempted, one of the things he said is not good to tempt the Lord your God. Test the Lord your God. Never test God. Good thing he doesn't respond to you the way he did to Sapphira. Because what happens to her? She lied to you, put him to test. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And she immediately fell at his feet, breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead. They carried her out and buried her next to her husband. Wow. You talk about the seriousness of sin. They lied about how much they were going to give. We don't know why. Maybe it's because they wanted to appear as somebody before the apostles. We don't know why. But they lied before God. You lied not to men, the end of verse 4, but to God. 
boom, you're dead. Wow. If you got killed when you lied, most of us, not not most of us, none of us would be here. The series of sin. Hebrews chapter 12 says God disciplines those that he loves. Hebrews 12. One author says, uh, sometimes love must hurt before it can help. It's got to hurt before it can help. Another author says, if you choose to disobey, expect consequences. God loves his children too much to allow you to play in the road, but don't confuse discipline and penalty. Discipline is a loving correction of a parent. Penalty is the price required for the offense. If you are a believer, the purpose of God's discipline is not to inflict upon you the punishment you deserve. If that were the case, then we would all be sent to hell. God disciplines his children so they will understand the seriousness of sin and be increasingly conformed to the image of his son. The reason God disciplines you is the same reason a godly parent disciplines his son or daughter. I've used the same illustration 20 times here at TBC. I've used it in Ukraine and India and Africa. Everybody in the whole world has the same dad. Everybody. See, when your dad went to spank you, my dad would reach for his belt, and my dad would say the same thing your dad said. My dad would say, son, this is going to... We all have the same dad. It hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. I want to say, really? I'm on the receiving end of this thing. And then my dad would say, son, the only reason I'm doing this is because a strange way to show love is going to beat me. How many of you said you would never say that to your kids, but you said it to your kids? <laughs> Guilty. You see, a loving father does discipline his son or daughter. And we have a heavenly father who loves us enough to do the same to us. And you see that discipline instills a fear for us. God has both an all-seeing eye and an all-forgiving heart. Last hour, I read that for the first time and thought, I like that. All-seeing eye, singular. I like that. (laughs) In an all-forgiving heart. That's our God. That's our God. I am so grateful for his mercy, his love, and his forgiveness, aren't you? I deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. But in his mercy, he has not done that to me. Well, the result is they feared the discipline of God. I didn't read to you the end of verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. After Ananias was struck dead, great fear came upon all who heard about it. You bet it did. And then look at the verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You bet it did. You just found out some dude kept some money he had promised and God struck him dead and that his wife died as well. You'd have great fear as well. You see, in our day and age, people talk about the love of God, the friendship of God, the, the goodness of God, which are all true, but we forget to talk about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and the anger of God. Because when sin occurs, our holy God does not want us to remain in that sin, and like a loving father, he disciplines his sons and daughters to woo them back to himself. So when I look at this passage, I see a severe holiness, a severe holiness but a comforting holiness. 
See, I look back now and I'm glad my dad was a disciplinarian because I recognize now, had I been in charge of the world at age three, four, five, or six, it would have not been very comforting. But I, now I had a father who disciplined me and he was in charge of that world. And now I have a heavenly father who does the same. Preached through the book of Acts. When my daughter was five years old, she's now 35, so that was 30 years ago, preached the book of Acts at TBC. At that time, it was before we had computers, I had uh, blue notebook paper, and uh, I kept those sermons. And so as I'm preaching through Acts, I pull those old sermons out to look at them. They're awful, actually. I don't know why anybody ever stayed. I mean, it was just terrible. But, but anyway, in the introduction to the sermon on this section, Sarah, our daughter, had turned to age five, and... Uh, During that week, it was a Friday night, and I can't remember all the details, Bev might, but I don't remember all the details, but in my notes, it talked about how uh, on this Friday night, Bev had fixed dinner for our whole family, and we're supposed to meet another family so Sarah and Daniel could play with their son and daughter. Well, just before dinner time, our daughter came bounding through the door, and uh, the neighbors had invited her to go out with them. And so she came through the door. We're sitting at the table waiting for her so we can eat and then go be with this family so she and our son can play with their kids. And uh, Sarah comes into her and says, so-and-so's invited me for dinner. I want to go with them. Is that okay, Dad? Well, sweetie, actually not. Uh, Mom's cooked dinner, and we're supposed to go over to so-and-so's house, and they're waiting for you and Daniel to come to play with their kids, and we're going to be together with them tonight. But, Dad, I I really, you know how five-year-old goes next, but, Dad, I really, really, really want to go there. and uh, Daddy, would you let me go? Sweetie, I'm sorry, you're not going to go. She started to argue. If you know our daughter, she was really good at that. And uh, now she's a godly woman with four kids of her own. But next thing she did is she, Daddy, please, please. And that's enough, sweetie, no more arguing. Her little chin begins to quiver. Her lips begin to tremble. Tears come down her eyes. And she looked at me and said, Daddy, you really know how to break a little girl's heart. Sometimes the best thing our Father can do to us is break our hearts. Because when we stray, He says, I'm going to bring you back. When we're in sin, He says, I'm not going to let you continue. I'm going to bring you back. I love you too much as my son or daughter to let you stay there. So I'm going to exercise a severe holiness that will comfort you and bring you back. Father, thank you for instilling your fear in the hearts of our brothers and sisters in the early church. Remind us of what only you can do. Father, I would think in a group this size, hundreds and hundreds of people, there are those that need to be brought back. I pray that before they experience your discipline, they would repent right now and be brought back. If you're the prodigal running from God, don't wait for his discipline. Come back now. If you don't know the Savior, I I pray right now you wouldn't leave this room without trusting him because eternal punishment awaits you if not. 
if you know the Savior and walk with the Savior and love the Savior. Why don't you thank Him right now for being a Savior who has a severe but comforting holiness. We love you. We worship you. In your holiness, we thank you. Amen.